I'm going to read Amos chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his prophets, to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria, be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So we begin this second set of messages, and... uh, I'm going to do this in three segments. I think the chapter comes in three sections. The first is rather short, but there's a sense in which it is the most important because it states a foundational principle. And then, and that is verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 8, I think what you have is an appeal from Amos to the people of Israel. An appeal for them to hear what he's saying and to repent and return to the Lord. He is talking about judgment. And then the ending of the verse, that that second section runs from 3 to 8. And then from 9 to 15, you have the promised judgment that uh, save the people, repent, 
this promised judgment is sure to call, come, sure to fall upon them. And so uh, that's where we're going to go. And as I said, we'll start then with the opening two verses, which really contain a biblical, throughout the Bible, a biblical and fundamental principle. And what is that? I've, I've entitled my proposition or stated my proposition that saving grace, truly given by God and received in true faith alone, results in lives of gratitude. And I want you to hear the, the three parts of that. God comes, and it was true in the Old Testament. It's always been true. It's true for us. He saves by grace completely. We don't contribute works. We don't contribute money. We don't, as the old archbishop uh, said of the Anglican Church, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So God comes and saves his people by grace. But wherever that grace is truly received by faith, it creates an appropriate response in the recipient. J.I. Packer, speaking about this, he says, uh, It has been said that in the New Testament, doctrine is grace. In other words, we hear the teaching of God about his grace in saving us. And he says, ethics, which is his word, for how we respond as God's people. If doctrine is grace, then ethics, that is the response of the Christian, is gratitude. And something is wrong with any form of Christianity in which experimentally and practically this saying is not being verified. Those who suppose that they can live any way they want after receiving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are simply terribly mistaken. So as we talk about this first main point, the first foundational principle, I've stated it as a proposition. If you want a verse for it, I think we use Luke 12, 48. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples And after telling a parable about a master who had entrusted much to his stewards, he comes to the conclusion of that parable. I'll let you read it at your leisure later on in your own homes. But in Luke 12, verse 48, he gives this summarizing principle. He says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from whom, from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And that is precisely the principle that Amos understands to be operating at this point in Israel's principle of uh, history. Israel has been given much. And let's take a look at what that is. What, in other words, we're, another way of saying it is simply that great privilege brings great responsibility. Great privilege 
incurs a great responsibility. And so let's see how that works out in these opening two verses. So what is the privilege that Israel has received? First of all, uh, I'll, say, I'll say three things quickly about this. It's in the language that is here. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And so Amos is reminding the people of Israel that the Lord chose them. This is the great privilege of election. This is the great privilege of the divine choice of God to save a certain people from destruction and from punishment. And so he, bring, he reminds them of that. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And I think what Amos is doing is he is reminding us of a, a special text. He is going back to the law of Moses where the, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the people of Israel are ready to enter the land of promise. They are there at the river Jordan. And Moses preaches to them. Listen to this language and how it is exactly what Amos is summarizing. Moses said to them, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number that the people, uh, more in number than, the, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. By the way, I'll interrupt here. That is often the definition of the Hebrew word known. To know someone is to be in relationship with them, particularly to love them. Uh, and, and I think that's why here in Deuteronomy that I'm reading, it is easy for the Lord to say, I chose you, I knew you, I chose you, and it's because I love you. Um, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so that text involves precisely what Amos is saying. Though Moses said those words probably somewhere around 700 years prior, 700 years prior, they're still good. God's choice doesn't change. And so Amos is saying, Israel, 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 hear the word of the Lord. I have chosen you. I knew you from all the families of the earth. You are special. I've done this out of love. By the way, this is exactly the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 for the Christian church. As he launches into his blessing for uh, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he says, in love, he foreordained us to. And he goes on and talks about that. It's exactly the same. um, And of course, that's going to be the connection we make. That these truths that we're talking about here for Israel are truths concerning the church. And so that's the first aspect of this special privilege. The second aspect of this privilege is the fact that he refers to their redemption from Egypt. He says in verse 1 that I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, that's the great Passover. That's the great deliverance. That's the great salvation of the nation of Israel. And once again, all of this is by grace. They didn't deserve that or earn that, but God has come. And at great cost, the idea of redeeming is the idea of buying back. It was the idea of being able to go and and pay the money, perhaps to get a relative out of slavery and to, to bring them into freedom. And so God is saying, by my election of you and by my redemption of you, you are mine. I have done this. This is the greatest of all privileges. A third thing we could say here is that he makes it clear. This is absolutely unique. Not another nation then in all the earth or ever since has had this privileged position as a nation. There is no greater privilege that could be had. And you easily see how we rightly say, what is the greatest privilege that a human being can have in the year 2024? Surely it is for God to take the initiative to choose them, to save them in Christ, to make them special, to draw them into his family. There is no greater blessing than that in all the earth. We, can, we rightly say that the, the, the greatest, uh, I'll use the word body, the greatest organization of which you can truly be a part is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No other body, no other entity, no other organization can hold a, hold a candle to what it means to have been brought into relationship with the God of heaven and earth. And Amos is telling them that. Okay, we need to press on because what is the striking thing is we hear this, you only have unknown, and he says, therefore... And we might have expected something like, therefore, I'll be patient with you further or what. But he says, no, therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. And so that's this principle of privilege and responsibility. And we would see that if we went back to Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 that I was reading from. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. 
And so we have this, this sense of, of proper response that is there. Uh, what we learn in this, by way of this point's application, is that sin is desperately serious among the people of God. It's serious enough for anybody. But what we are finding out as we go through Amos and as we would continue to go through really the scriptures is that sin has lost none of its ugliness because it is committed by a child of God. In fact, the real point of this text and the real point of the principle is there's even a a certain sense of a greater ugliness to it. The people that should not. Matter of fact, did we not hear that this morning from the Apostle John as Kurt preached? My little children, I write these things to you that what? You may not sin. This is serious. And so Amos is working off of this principle. Okay. The second point, these verses 3 through 8, they may appear kind of odd to you, but what Amos is doing is using a certain logical form of appeal to the people. In other words, there, there might still be a moment for repentance, an open door for them to turn. And so he's trying to appeal to them to turn and repent. And he uses illustrations from the world that are common experiences, common observances, And just to cut to the chase, every one of the questions is expecting the answer no. Do two people walk together unless they're in agreement? Well, the answer to that is no. If you're walking the sidewalks of Montgomery and a complete stranger comes up and starts talking to you, you're probably going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. You didn't ask them. You didn't agree for them to join you. And so if you see two people cheerfully walking down the road conversing, the idea is, ah, they are walking in a in agreement. And so uh, you have that in verse 3. In verse 4, he refers to a lion, the practices of a lion, which, again, is interesting because he has referred to Jehovah as the lion of Judah in this text. But he asked the question at the start of verse 4. Do lions roar as they are approaching the prey? Well, the answer is no. They know that would scare them off. And then he asked the question in verse 5, uh, the second, or excuse me, verse 4, the second part of it. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? And the idea there, if the lion is sitting in his den, not protecting prey caught, not protecting food that he has gathered, then no, he's, he, in other words, he has nothing to lose if another lion approaches. There's nothing to take. But just like maybe your dog, if your dog is chewing on its favorite toy, he has it in his possession, and you try to take it out of his mouth, what does he do? He growls at you, may even snap at you. But the answer to the question here in 4 is no, there's no prey there, so he doesn't, he doesn't uh, roar at that point. And so you move to verse 5. Do birds just fall into snares? 
uh, and traps without any bait in them? Well, the answer is no. Does a, does a snare or a trap just, uh, just spring up off the ground when it's taken up? In other words, nothing's triggered it. The answer is no. But then he gets into something very important. Uh, n- these other things are obvious. Like I said, he's, he's, he's developing cause and effect. Cause and effect. The bird hitting bait in the trap causes the trap to close. And so he now says, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? That, the answer to that is no. If a trumpet is blown in a city, the people are afraid because disaster is coming. And then he closes this section does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And really the answer there is he's saying, people of Israel, disaster is coming. And it's coming from no less a source than Jehovah, than the God who called you and gave you this special privilege. And then he closes this section in verses Uh, 7 and 8 by an appeal to them. And and so he says uh, in this, the lion, the point of verses 7 through 8 is basically the lion is roaring. The fact that he is roaring means the prey is not in his mouth yet. But he is here and he's coming. And he's roaring. And so if he's roaring, then he's roaring and telling messages to his prophet. And Amos is saying, that's why I'm standing in front of you. The lion has roared in my ears and I'm telling you the message to hear. He's trying to get them to move from that. From their position of opposition to him and being against the Lord. And then let's move thirdly to the, uh, the promised punishment. These last verses, verses 9 through 15. And so, if they will not turn, then this is what is promised. And I think it's easiest just to, to speak about st- uh, structures uh, that will help us follow the flow of this. First of all, he calls a Philistine city and Egypt to come and see. Come and see what's going to happen to Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. In verses, <clears throat> in verse 9 and 10, come and see what's going to happen to them. They do not know how to do right. Now, as, and, and what's going to be the earthly form of this will be the Assyrians. The Assyrians will come in 722, and do precisely the things that Amos is prophesying here, maybe somewhere around the year 750, 755, in other words, 30-ish, 35 years before the event. And so he is, uh, as he prophesies the judgment, it is God telling Egypt and Ashdod, come and see what I'm going to do. 
because really it will happen to you. There, there is a common word that's used in these few opening few verses. It's strongholds. And so if you see that uh, there, uh, proclaim to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, in the strongholds in Egypt, and then uh, speaks to the fact that, that God will, in verse 11, surround the Israel strongholds. These were, this was a time of plenty and great prosperity for Israel. The kings had built fortresses. They thought they could be secure by, by armies and by horses and by chariots and all those things. And so where would people begin to flee as they heard of the Assyrians coming? Well, they would flee to the strongholds. And God is saying, I will demolish them. They will be surrounded. They will be absolutely destroyed. Where will, where will the next place they might flee be? Well, people might flee to the temple. There were various temples, two particularly in Israel, where Jeroboam had set up golden calves to worship. And so you'll see in verses 13 and 14, he addresses the issue of religious worship. And he, his statement there is God is going to punish the people of Israel because of their false religion. Amos mentions Bethel six times in his letter. That's because that is one of the sites, one of the principal sites that Jeroboam set up in order to attract the people of Israel to stay in Israel and not travel to Jerusalem, to actually worship at the temple. And so this false religion is going to be utterly demolished, says the Lord of hosts. And then what is the third structure that is here? The third structure is in verse 15. These people had practice violence and oppression. You'll see that language in verses 9 and 10. They don't know how to do right. They have oppressed people in their midst. They have stored up for the violence and robbery in their strongholds. In other words, they had oppressed the poor, oppressed the widow, oppressed the or- orphan, gained wealth and riches by, by evil means and methods, and built lavish houses. And by the way, archaeology has discovered some of these places. Uh, ivory and other things that uh, show uh, a more uh, higher economic level of, li- of living in some of these areas that we're talking about. And so, this is the promised destruction. Kurt said in his last sermon that the judgment of God is inescapable. Here I want to add just a few adjectives to that. It's not only inescapable, but it is appropriate and fair. They thought they could make a better religion than what God offered them. God says, no, you can't. And he destroys it. They thought they could build their personal ease and wealth and their homes. And God says, no, you can't. And he destroys it. God said, or they said, we can build fortresses and we can protect ourselves. And God says, no, you can't protect yourself from me. And it is a fair and appropriate 
justice and judgment, and it is complete and comprehensive. The people of Israel, those ten tribes, will basically lose their identity. They will be so scattered by the Assyrians in this time period that they really, to my knowledge, never regain the uh, the the unity and the existence of, say, a, a person from Judah. Is this applicable? I need to bring it to a conclusion here. How is it applicable? There are several ways. I want to start by saying, first of all, there's nothing unchristian in what we have considered tonight. Matter of fact, you might say there's everything Christian about it. Let me give you a f- just two or three examples. What about the judgment of God? Does the New Testament talk about a future judgment? Of course it does. You know it does. Listen to how that doctrine impacts the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8 through 11. This is very appropriate as we enter a month devoted to world missions. He says, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Therefore, now here's a conclusion from that statement about judgment. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. Do you hear the driving force into missions and evangelism? The people we meet that have no faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have this to look forward to, this kind of judgment. Paul understood that. And it was part, it wasn't everything, but it was certainly a part of his driving um, evangelistic zeal. But let uh, let me say a few other things to us good Presbyterians. Does the doctrine of election have this principle in it of great privilege, great responsibility for New Testament Christians? Listen to how Peter talks about this concerning election in 2 Peter 1 verse 9. He says, after talking about encouraging and and challenging Christians to grow in their Christian development, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall." Election as a doctrine is absolutely true, it's biblical, it's taught, and it never leads to complacency. Not according to the Apostle Peter. We're about to go to the table of the Lord. 
And it's a, and that's a wonderful place to end after a sermon like this. For my guess is, if you're like me, we are a very privileged people, a very blessed people. And perhaps you're thinking, I haven't fully lived to the full as the Lord would want me to. Not to earn salvation, but as that proper response of gratitude. Let me give you just one more from Peter. We said that the people of Israel in Amos' day, they were not only elected, they were redeemed. Peter writing says to the church, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, do we have the privilege of calling the God of heaven and earth our father? Absolutely. Thank God our Lord taught us to say, Our Father, which art in heaven. But listen to how Peter applies this. If you have that privilege to call him Father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, that's the language of redemption, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You hear the fact of a gracious salvation that comes with a responsibility You might call it, is it simply the responsibility to say in word, in thought, in my life each day, thank you, a life of gratitude to our God. Much more could be said about these things, but let us pray and prepare to be reminded that God has chosen us, brought us into his family by the, the all-sufficient sacrifice of our Lord. And let us be strengthened in these things. But let us hear the principle that is still operating. Great privilege entails a great responsibility. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do count it a blessing to be able to say that you are our Father The Lord Jesus is our elder brother. You have given us of your spirit. We could spend time counting up the manifold blessings of what it means to be your child. And so as we hear what transpired in a time past, would you deliver us from complacency and blindness and as any sense that our, the lives you give us are unimportant. Help us, O oh Lord, to respond in true faith, a faith that will abide with you and walk with you all the days you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.